Amen. I will apologize ahead of time because I'm overly prepared for things to, with things to say to our church today, which is not good at the first gathering. It's good for later on when, when there's more time. Uh, but at the first gathering, man, I just, I, I feel like what we've been articulating through the scriptures in the gospel of Luke is coming to light before our eyes. If you haven't been with us, we've been looking at these scenes in the life of Jesus in the gospel of Luke, and we're calling it the invitation of Jesus because we're not just looking at these as stories that happened 2,000 years ago, but as invitations to a deeper level of discipleship than we've ever gone before. More surrender, more of God, less of self. And it makes perfect sense if you've been following along with the storyline of our church. It was a little over a year ago, we did a series called Remnant. Anybody remember that? Sermon on the Mount? And I got in front of you every week, and I said, this, this is like what God has given me for our church, that we're supposed to go from being consumers to disciples. That we're, we're supposed to each individually, depending on where we are in our journey and in our season, take a step of discipleship, of full surrender to God. And in that series, I said, I have realized that the problem with spoon-feeding sermons that are easy to follow, easy to apply, and not difficult to stomach, the problem with doing that is that it ignores a higher call of discipleship that Jesus hits throughout his ministry. So we said a year ago, instead of preaching to the masses, we're going to preach to what we call the remnant, which is the group of resilient disciples that exists in every church where God is moving but they get ignored so oftentimes for the sake of being more desirable to the new people or more attractive to the consumer. And, and so I said, I'm just going to preach to the remnant and preach to deep disciples in hope that by raising the bar, more people step up. And for the most part, I feel like maturity and like true discipleship to Jesus is becoming more of a norm here. Like it's starting to stand out more if you come to Auburn Community Church and don't have a private prayer life than if you do. It's starting to stand out more if you're not passionately engaged in loving God and serving the poor and helping the people around you than if you're just living for yourself. Like that person's starting to stand out here. And it's the exact cultural tide that we wanted to cause. Not that we wanted to cause, but we wanted to read in the scriptures and go, God, take us deeper into what it means to dedicate more of ourselves to you. And I want to refer back to that moment because today's sermon is really about going to a deeper level of trust and discipleship to Jesus, but going through the ultimate catalyst for going deeper in your faith. Are you ready for this? The way to go deeper than you've ever been before in your relationship with God is to walk with Jesus through a season and or seasons of major disappointment, of deep hurt and pain, and of frustration, and circumstances in life that if you had control, you would handle totally different. That's the, that's the pathway to going deeper with God. You heard that last week. Did you notice in everybody's baptism story, it wasn't, I went on this amazing vacation, and God just, I mean, he just, he's appeared to me, and I'm, I'm here to get baptized. Or, hey, I got so wealthy, and life just ended up so amazing. And I was like, you know what else I need? Jesus. And, uh, and then so I just, I'm here to get baptized. No, where, where was the catalyst for true growth in everybody's story? Pain, hurt, addiction, emptiness, loneliness. It was God met me 
when I was in a state of need. And while none of us would write those details in our stories, I actually believe that the key to going deeper in your discipleship to Jesus is learning to trust him in the middle while you're disappointed, while you're hurt, while you're feeling betrayed, and while you wish God would have handled something completely differently. Today's sermon is called The Walk to Emmaus, and it's fitting because a couple weeks ago we did two weeks on the cross, and we're, we're not skipping over the resurrection narrative. We saw the resurrection narrative a week ago, dead, buried, and raised on display through people's stories, but now you get this account of the resurrection that only occurs in Luke's gospel. Most of you are familiar with it if you grew up in church or if you've attended an event called The Walk to Emmaus. You've probably heard of this story. But a lot of you have never really noticed how crazy it is that this story is in the Bible. Today, when we open our scriptures, we're going to read a story about two disciples of Jesus who watched him get crucified and die on a Friday stuck around in Jerusalem until Sunday and heard the stories of the empty tomb and a vision of angels and Peter went there. They heard about the resurrection, didn't believe it, and the day of walked home seven miles to a place called Emmaus. And on the way home, they ran into Jesus, resurrected, but they didn't know it was him. And they had a long conversation. This is actually in the Bible. This is one of those stories that, you, you know when you're reading the Bible and you're like, yeah, I know a lot of people think this is just made up, but no one could make something like this up. Like your best day of your best imagination cannot come up with the details that we are gonna read about today in the scriptures. Did you bring your Bible this morning? If you brought your Bible, hold it up. Hold it up, every location, all over this space. Hold it up high, looking good, looking good. Look at somebody next to you say, I love my Bible. Look at somebody who didn't bring one, say, where's your Bible? Turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. I got a new preaching Bible. Smells so good. It's got like a, a double marker. One of them's red, one of them's black, so I can save multiple spots. It's from, it's from this, this company, Scriptura, that, that, that they create like these amazing Bibles. And I just, it was time. Like, have, you, have y'all noticed that my Bible up here is falling apart? And, that, and that's, that's not even the Bible I read on my own time. That's just the Bible I study and carry around. It's probably falling apart because of all the weddings that have been done with the documents taped inside of those. But I moved on to a new Bible this week because today is a new day. And this is a new story about Resurrection Sunday that many of you have never heard before. Luke chapter 24, we're going to start in verse 13. I want you to note the first three words of this passage because we're going to read this and talk about it as we go. But note that it says, now that same day. What day? Read the section before. Jesus has risen. This is Resurrection Sunday, guys. The day. The day that our entire faith is founded upon. Now, that same day, let's read this together. Luke chapter 24, verse 13. If you're there, say, I'm there. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. Now, scholars debate, why don't people recognize Jesus immediately when he's in his resurrected body? And there's like, well, he looks different. Well, he's like intentionally being a little sneaky and hiding some things. And, 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 and some of that could be true. But the main reason why people don't recognize Jesus in his resurrected body is because their brains didn't have a category for someone they watch physically die being alive. 
That's the main reason why. So the key isn't to focus on, ooh, how is he veiling his presence? It's really more about they don't have the wherewithal to even imagine or envision a realm of possibility where resurrection was on the table. So they don't, they don't recognize him. And he asks them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? Jesus is the most interesting person and the most fun individual to study in the history of the world. After rising from the dead in resurrected form, he's got disciples who are leaving Jerusalem to go back home. He walks up to them and his first question is, hey, what are you guys talking about? I mean, you think about it. If you're risen from the dead, seeing your friends that you've known for a while, how are you going to handle that moment? Jesus is in no hurry to unveil the mystery of how all this happened. He's in no hurry to get back at his critics. He literally goes to his friends and privately enters a conversation and goes, hey, what's going on? Like, what, what do you guys, you, you guys clearly are, are talking about something. It says, they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And we know Cleopas's name. We don't know a lot about him. There's a debate about, is this Joseph, Jesus's adopted father? Is this Joseph's brother who has a similar name? A lot of people think this is Cleopas and his wife, a husband and wife, but we don't know for sure. Two of them going together. Jesus says, what are you guys talking about? With a downcast face, he asks, are you the only one? who doesn't know what just happened? You know what's ironic about that statement? The irony of that statement is that Jesus is the only one who really knows what happened. And he's like, you're the only one who doesn't know. See, that's what we do so oftentimes when we're disappointed and hurt, is we assume God is the only one who doesn't get it and is not paying attention. Maybe God is the only one who fully gets it and is fully paying attention. Are you the only one who doesn't know what has happened during these days? I love Jesus, verse 19. What things, he asks. I'm like, tell me about it. I'm here for it. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed. You can circle that phrase. That's a theme of Luke, word and deed. Before God and all the people, the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, I love this, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together saying, It is true, 
The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Now, regardless of what you came in knowing about this story, I want us to try, just like we've done in so many other narratives in Luke, try to see this with fresh eyes. Jesus, in a resurrected body, unbeknownst to these two disciples, joins their walk away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem, symbolic of the promise of God. Emmaus, seven-mile walk away. We don't know exactly where that city is today, but seven miles away is symbolic of the way of the world. They're leaving behind the dream of the kingdom of God and heading back home, faces downcast, claiming we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Now follow the progression. Jesus, without them still, without them knowing it's Jesus, calls them out for not seeing that this had to happen, keeps walking even when they get to Emmaus. They invite him into their home. They don't recognize it's physically Jesus until he breaks bread with them. We're going to talk about that next week. Next week's going to set us up for Thanksgiving and talk about the breaking of bread and the table and how powerful that is on a spiritual level. You should make sure you hear next week, even if you're out of town. I think it's going to be really good. They recognize physically what they started recognizing spiritually, and they say, when he was showing us the scriptures, weren't our hearts burning? It is the Lord, and they report that back. Now, just take yourself into this moment, the progression of what just unfolded on Resurrection Sunday. Two disciples. Two disciples. What is a disciple? Not a convert. Not a, yeah, I think I'm going to join this Jesus thing. I think I'm going to start attending once a week and applying some of his teachings to my life. No, no, no. That's a convert. A disciple is someone, okay, everything. I want to learn from you. I want to base my life and bank it on the reality that God is on what you are teaching. Everything about me is to follow you and learn to live the way you live, talk the way you talk, do what you do, as if you were me. That's what a disciple is. This one who claimed to be the Messiah, the bringer of the kingdom of God, was crucified by the Romans. They watched physically him dead and buried And with Jesus' death on the cross, every dream, every financial resource, everything about what they just gave their lives to for who knows how many days or weeks or years has gone down the drain in a weekend. You ever had your dream die on you suddenly? You ever had your marriage crumble before you even recognized it was happening? You ever had a career that was once so vibrant and successful, just fall apart in an instant. That's, that's that moment for them times a million of what anybody in this room's ever gone through. Everything about reality, everything about what they invested their lives in, totally gone. And in that disappointment, they get news that maybe he was risen, maybe saw a vision of an angel. They kind of ignore that and they head home. Now, when Jesus runs into them and hears them in their disappointment, What do you think he's going to say? You see, my vision of Jesus, at least the version I have in my head, is the most gentle and lowly, humble servant who ever lived. I'm picturing Jesus throwing two arms around both of them and going, hey, I know you're disappointed and I know you're hurt, but you need to turn around and come back with me to Jerusalem because it's going to be okay. That's how I picture Jesus. But that's not what happened at all in this story. See, I just read over it. But did you notice what Jesus had to say once he started sharing his opinion? 
It's in verse 25. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You can underline that and circle that because that's the harshest language Jesus will use in the entire gospel of Luke. It's actually a quote of a psalm. Let's keep in mind, in Luke, Jesus has talked to Pharisees who were out to kill him, Pontius Pilate, who literally sentenced him to death, demons, and cast them out, and Jesus saves his harshest words, his, his, his most bitter rebuke for two disciples who are so disappointed that they're walking away. How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. You should see that. When you see something weird in the Bible, you shouldn't gloss over it. You should look deeply into it and go, whoa, what's that about? That's not my buddy Jesus who just wants to throw his arms around me, give me a hug, daddy, teddy bear in the sky, God, who just wants to love on me. That's, that's a harsh criticism of someone who's in a pretty understandable position with their hopes dashed. And when you ask yourself, why did Jesus say that? I, I think when you dig deeper into this passage, you find that Jesus is not coming up with that out of nowhere. He's saying that as a response to something they said. You can look at it in verse 20 when they say the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. Watch this line. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. See, I believe Jesus was so harsh because they have admitted out loud that their hope is now in the past tense. We had hoped. We'd put it all in on Jesus. It was there. We had hoped he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. This position that they're in is not like a, a fleeting moment of weakness or a oscillating of their heart. This is a complete resignation to the powers of darkness and a giving up on the one they used to call rabbi. We're out. We'd hoped it's over. Some of our women we might be risen, but we had hoped. And Jesus in this moment, is saying that apparently his death, even on a cross, was not a reason to totally abandon hope. What Jesus is calling these two on the walk to Emmaus, and I believe he's calling us to today, is, is a deeper level of discipleship where we stop waiting and needing the explanation on the back end to stay in a position of trusting in the middle. Jesus is calling them out, and he's going, not okay to completely give up hope. Not okay to walk away entirely. Not okay to cash it all in. Okay to process, okay to grieve, okay to be confused, not okay to give up. And our temptation, at least I know this about myself and I know this about some of you, our temptation so often in the Christian life is to always be waiting for an after the fact explanation about the presence of God to give glory to God. We wait till after the fact where we can go, oh yeah, that's why that relationship broke off. That's why I lost that job. That's why she got sick. That's, that's why COVID happened. That's why, I, oh yeah, 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 God, glory to God. But, but what if deeper discipleship is finding a way to trust him before you have that explanation? To trust that his presence is always present. What's so ironic about this story is that while these disciples complain about Jesus's absence, He's resurrected right in front of their face and they don't know it. You're, God is absent. He's gone. 
And, and to think in that reality, the Son of God, risen from the dead, is talking you through Scripture and walking with you in the midst of all hope being completely lost. See, I, I think our vision for today is to learn deep discipleship, which is how do I press in and find the presence of God in the middle of being disappointed and in the middle of things not looking the way I expected and in the middle of really whatever circumstance I find myself in today. Here's, here's a truth that we need to hit home today. God, you can write this down. God is always present, but God's presence is not always perceived. God is always present, but God's presence is not always perceived. So what's happening here is God is so tangibly involved in a moment, but these two disciples don't have a manifested access to the presence of God. It's there, but it's not there for them. That's, that's what happens for us every single time we come into the presence of God. So it's so interesting the way we pray. Sometimes before church, we go, God, we just pray your presence would fall. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come. What we're really praying when we say those things is not, hey, come because you're not here. It's, oh, we recognize you're already here, but we might not be perceiving it or discerning it. That's a good word. It's the ability to discern and participate in the presence of God. Because where is God? Everywhere. God can invade your life and invade any space where you're open to look for him. The problem is the presence of God for so many of us has stayed limited to our level of understanding after the fact. Not God, I trust you and I'm in regardless of whether or not it looks like a cross on a Friday or an empty tomb on a Sunday that I don't even really understand. How many of us have ever considered that? That even the empty tomb was not an immediate party and celebration. It was a cause for more doubt, for more agnosticism, for more, I uh, just uh, God, is, uh, we don't know what he's doing. God's presence is always available, but God's presence is not always perceived. And I believe there is gold to be found in our relationship with God when we seek his presence in the middle. In the middle of what? In the middle of your journey to deeper discipleship that will always, always, always look like a three-step process. It's the same three-step process you just watched them go through, but you're going to go through it in your relationship with God. You're going to go through it in your career. You're going to go through it in your marriage. You're going to go through it in your family. You're going to go through it in the grand arc of your life. Here's the three steps you just saw them go through. They are dream, death, and rebirth. Dream, death, and rebirth. So pay attention. What was the dream? The, the dream was they're walking around first century Israel, enslaved to the Romans, a part of the people of God who claimed to be following the one true God but so disobedient over the course of generations that they find themselves enslaved to yet another oppressive regime. And oh my goodness, the promised Messiah of the line of David has shown up. And he's not just showing up, he's proven it. He's raising people from the dead. He's healing thousands of people with a little bit of food. He's got people with leprosy walking around healed. He's got people who've never seen before going, I don't even believe in him, but I can see. I, like, I, I don't even know who he is. I know I couldn't see, but now I can see. But he's got signs and wonders and miracles. And not only that, when he teaches, he teaches with an authority that no teacher has ever taught with. He's got understanding, he's got discernment, but yet he's compassionate, he's humble, he's kind. He was born into the right family. He was born in the right city. This is it. This is the guy. This is the guy. Let's give it all. 
It's him. Dream, death. The Roman government and the Jewish establishment just combined to take the life of the one who we thought was going to be the Messiah. Not just dead, but spear in the side, water coming out. Every drop of blood he had. There is no life left in his body. He is dead and buried. And rebirth. Wait, what? This was teaching that the entire time and I didn't see it? Wait, you're... And now the kingdom of God invites them into a new level of participating in their relationship with God and a new level of experiencing, watch this, a new and better version of the dream they originally had, but they didn't know they needed. Okay? So you follow that progression? That's true about your life. That's true. This is true about every godly marriage in the room. What is the dream? The dream is dating and engagement and the first week of being married. That's the dream. Okay? <laughs> It's like vision, oh, this, is, this person is going to complete me. I finally understand Jerry Maguire. This is it. It's her, it's him, it's it. Yes, the dream is there. We're engaged and we're setting up our wedding and the only poor part about that is how immature our families act and making our wedding more about them than us, but it's fine. Parents, please stop doing that. And um, you're like, don't talk. You don't, haven't been there yet. I haven't, but I think I'm going to make it more about them than me. Just want to be secure enough. And, um, and so it's like the dream and you get married and then you find out this person you're in covenant with is just as flawed and broken and selfish and needy as you are. You might find that out in week one or year one or year five or year 10, but there's a disillusionment that happens in every marriage when you discover a lifetime together is not the original dream I thought I was going to receive. And there's a death to expectations that has to happen. But then where God moves, there's a rebirth where even though it's not scripted like your favorite romantic comedy and it doesn't always feel like the most comfortable, most likable thing in the world, now you're like, oh, wow, there's a new version of spending my life with this person that I actually genuinely desire and enjoy. And you make it to the rebirth based on whether or not you process, grieve, and understand the promises of God in the death or not. Y'all, this is the story of Joseph. I got this dream. My brothers are going to bow down in front of me. I'm going to be in this position of power. Yeah, that's your dream. Good thing when God shows you the dream, he doesn't show you the death that will have to lead to the rebirth because the death for Joseph was being left for dead and abandoned entirely, sold into slavery. And God brings it all the way around in the end for him to be in a position of power at the right hand of Pharaoh to give food to his brothers. But there's a difference between the dream and the death and the rebirth that I've personally seen in the last week, what it means for God to be involved in the middle. And Jesus is speaking to some of us today and going, I, I'm not abandoning you when all of your expectations are shattered. In fact, he might be more present in that moment than in the original moment you get the dream or in the final moment you understand the rebirth. I saw this in such a fresh way this week. So Cordy and I got to be in New York City this week for a conference with a bunch of pastors and pastors' wives. It was super powerful, but the timing of it kept getting me because it was actually in November of 2012 when Courtney and I went to New York City for the first time and received a legitimate, you guys know I'm not weird about things like this, but this was legit, a legitimate vision from God of the church that we would soon lead. 
It was, it was more real than anything I've ever received from God. I could barely breathe. I remember the bench that I sat on and exactly where I was in Madison Square Park. It was, it was powerful. It was like, you're going to lead a church that's like this, 2012. And I thought that's 10, 20 years down the road, but crazy that we felt that. So we're there exactly 10 years after the fact. But I also remembered that in 2014, we had this other trip to New York City that happened 10 weeks into launching Auburn Community Church. And I could tell you about 2012 when we were like, man, we have this vision for a church that functions multi-generationally and makes much of Jesus, and, and it's going to come to life. And I can tell you about 2012 and 2022 where God's done it and way more, and we're about to see days in our church that are so exciting and it's so good and so healthy and, yes, hard, but, oh, my goodness, this is the joy of a lifetime. But I, I haven't thought about 2014. Ten weeks into ACC, Courtney and I went to a conference in New York City freaking out about the place we just moved to. Church had no money and even less momentum. Things not going well within the leadership team. Relationships fractured. No excitement, no joy, no children's ministry, no youth ministry, no building. You're like, that sounds like a terrible church. It was. <laughs> and so we're in New York City kind of collecting like... What was it that felt so life-giving and hope-giving in 2012, and where am I right now? And it's so easy to sense God when you catch the original vision, and it's so easy to sense God on the back end when you go, that's where you were all along. But what I discovered walking in some of the same places that I walked in 2014, 10 weeks into our church, is I realized it's not that God disappeared and re-showed up. It's that God is present in the middle and more real in the moments where you're the most hurt and disappointed if you actually seek him and look for him where he may be found. See, I learned more about the character of God being disappointed and hurt in the middle than I ever learned at the beginning receiving the dream or on the back end looking back at the faithfulness of God. If you want to go deeper in your discipleship to Jesus, you have to learn how to seek out the presence of God when you're in that messy middle waiting. I don't get it. Doesn't make sense. Wouldn't write it this way. My expectations are shattered. I just want to give up. I just want to walk away. The whole sermon today, the whole sermon is this. When things don't look the way you thought or don't turn out the way you expected, don't walk away. That's the whole sermon. And Jesus is calling them out going, I understand you're disappointed. I understand you're hurt, but you are going the wrong way. Don't you walk away right now because this story is not over. In fact, this story is about to take a major twist in a direction that you don't even see. And you're not going to see if you keep walking over here. You got to come back here. That's why Jesus disappeared right when they noticed him. Because it wasn't about mystically going, gotcha, I actually was working. It was about them discovering we went the wrong way. And we were never supposed to give up on our hope. If you look to Jesus, particularly through his word, there is always hope on the horizon. But you gotta look. And if you got your head down, walking to Emmaus and Jerusalem is behind you, there's no level of inspirational buildup where I can go, don't give up, God's about to do this and this. Sometimes you need a rebuke from the son of God that says, lift up your eyes, open your Bible and walk back there, not over there right now. Stop playing games. Playing too many games, being sensitive with this whole deconstruction movement and people walking away from their faith. Playing too many games politically and going, well, we just don't want to offend anybody with sharing our opinion too boldly or too brashly. That's what got the church into the weak state of discipleship she's in right now. 
It's not a time to play games. It's time to go, hey, wake up. You're walking the wrong way. He's over here. He's over here. Hey, there's life over here. There's more over here. Yeah, I know that kind of offends you. And I was just more harsh with you than I was with demons. But you're going this way. Turn around. If I need to put a book in front of your face and walk you, it's literally walking them through the scriptures going, this was there all along, but you didn't see it. What do I want you to do with this sermon, with whatever time I'm in the negatives that I have left? I want you to get more of God. And I want you to get more of God by doing two things. I want you to check the attachment of your hope by checking the actions of your life. Check the attachment of your hope by checking the actions of your life. An easier way to say that is, is Jesus really where your hope lies? Because what happened for Cleopas and probably his wife is the object of their hope was exposed. They would have told you the week leading up to crucifixion that their hope was in Jesus. But really, their hope was in an outcome. Their hope was in the version of what Jesus would do for their lives, not him person, the son of God. Y'all, I'm so sorry, but like that's true for all of us. None of us really know if in Christ alone my hope is found, if, if that's actually true about us, until Christ brings something to your life that's totally different from the outcomes you were assuming. And when that happens, I don't think it's bad to be jarred. I don't think it's bad to be surprised and process that with God. I'm not saying any of that. I'm saying if I looked at the actions of your life, is it clear that the object of your hope is that the Son of God is who he says he is and that your life is anchored to a hope that does not oscillate depending on how things may or may not go in your life? And the thing is, no matter what you answer out loud, your actions tell the story. I did a dating series. I did this talk called Decisions Don't Lie. It was that that whole play on the ball don't lie thing that basketball players do. It's like, yeah, but your choices, where you spend your money, where your affection is, like it doesn't lie. You cannot say in Christ alone, my hope is found and live with the attachments that so many of our behaviors are attached to. So I just wanna call us today, check the attachment of your hope by checking the actions of your life. I had a moment like that this week at this pastor's conference. Y'all, just side note, there are young guys leading vibrant churches very similar to ours with tender-hearted, pure-hearted men and women who are so heartbroken about what's happened in the church the last couple of years, and they're leading with maturity and intelligence. I just, this is a side thing. Guys, we're not the only ones. Like, like we're not alone out there. It's crazy. But I had this moment, this, this pastor got up and he said, you can know whether or not your hope's really in Jesus as a pastor by answering this question. If God showed up to you right now and said, I'm bringing revival to your city, and you react one way, and then he says, I'm bringing revival, but it won't be through you and your church. So how you react to that really determines whether or not your hope is in Jesus. And I was like, well, I will go sit with that alone and cry in Central Park. Um, like I'm, I'm going, ah, okay, I got some work to do on my attachments. This, this, this doesn't happen immediately. The deeper you go into discipleship, the more you discover how much your hope is not really rooted in him. And, and I'm not saying that's, uh, that's okay. It's not okay. It's okay to realize that, not okay to stay there. Check what your hope is attached to and make it Jesus. Number two, and I'm done. Stoke the fire of your faith by lifting your eyes to Jesus. Stoke the fire of your faith by lifting your eyes to Jesus. Simple way to say this one, is there fire from God's presence in your life? One of the coolest, most ignored details about the walk to Emmaus 
is that God started moving way before they realized that they were talking to the resurrected Jesus. God moved as what? As Jesus unveiled through the scriptures why the Messiah must suffer. And then after they realized that Jesus was in their presence, look at this in verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Something powerful happens when we take communion and we're about to. Then their eyes were open and they recognized him, physically speaking, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us when he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Follow that. Their hearts were burning with hope and expectation before the reveal, before the, oh, this all makes sense now. You rose from the dead, sins paid for. We're going to heaven forever, kingdom of God. But in between then, building God makes sense. No, it's like while they're disappointed, while they're hopeless, while they are walking in the wrong direction, heart burning with expectation because of what? The presence of God. The presence of God is wherever the scriptures are unveiled for the truth that is found in them and the spirit of truth is the one illuminating Christ. That's what was happening for them. That's what can happen for you even if your dreams are dashed, even if your expectations are ruined. There is fire to be had from the presence of God. And for a lot of us, fire is rare. When I talk about fire, I'm not talking about saying gibberish and speaking in another language. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about genuine fruit of the spirit, joy and passion that comes from being in the presence of God. I don't know your personality type and I don't know if you grew up traditional and if you're just uncomfortable. I wanna be sensitive to your journey. But if it is not clear that there is an intoxicating presence of God that is the fuel and source of your life, whether you're disappointed or totally fulfilled, I don't believe that the Spirit of God lives on the inside of some of you. I just don't. And I don't say that to be mean to you or to question your salvation. I say that to go, are you opening this and letting it set you on fire? But I'm super hurt and I'm alone and I'm, yeah, you need the fire more now than any other time. Like let the scriptures ignite the fire, but I don't have Jesus walking me through it. Yes, you do. Just as much as they did. They didn't even recognize this was him physically. It was the spiritual recognition that was there. That's what these moments exist to do. And these moments exist to carry us into a week of living out of the overflow of the fire that comes from the presence of God. Jesus died to give you this. You can get your communion elements out right now. All of our locations, we're gonna take communion. Remember the sacrifice of Jesus. And then we're gonna to sing together to close. We're gonna sing an old hymn called In Christ Alone. And we're gonna believe that God's gonna do the very thing he was doing back then. If you didn't get one, just raise your hand right where you're at. All of our locations, someone from our team will make sure to bring you the elements. And if you're not a believer in Jesus, you wanna throw that thing just under your seat. We'll come grab it later. This is our moment as Christians to remember the sacrifice of Jesus and the access that we get to God because of the cross. Husbands, pray over your wives as always. Let's spend time reflecting before we sing.